come with me to Indiana Back to 1855 To the little town of Terre Haute Where railroading once thrived There Eugene Victor Debs was born And before that boy could stand He told the world and his mom, Palm, gonna be railroad man. He went to work. I was in Memphis at the time of the uh, 1968 sanitation strike uh, when Dr. King came uh, to share his commitment with the 1,300 men who had gone on strike. It was Deb's idea that it could change the environment, the social environment in which people live. You created an ideal environment. But then we'd all grow to be giants, 80 feet tall. Today's show covers a lot of ground, from legendary labor leader Bill Lucy's memories of Dr. King and the 1968 Memphis sanitation strike, to Schubert Sabree's memories of Gene Debs, founder of the powerful American Railway Union, and three-time socialist candidate for president of the United States. Bill Lucy has some inspiring advice for those who are carrying on Dr. King's fight for justice, especially younger activists. And Schubert Sabri reveals a gentler side to Debs, as fierce a labor leader as we've ever known. On Labor History in Two, we'll hear about the founding of the United Mine Workers, Knights of Labor founder Terence Powderly, and the 1959 Knox coal flood disaster. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. He said, let's build a union that'll meet the workers' need. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1849. That was the birthday of U.S. labor leader Terence Powderly. Powderly was born the second youngest of 12 children to Irish immigrants in Carbondale, Pennsylvania. At the age of 14, he went to work for the Delaware and Hudson Railroad. In 1871, he joined the International Union of Machinists and Blacksmiths. Also involved in local politics, he was elected mayor of Scranton, Pennsylvania seven years later. Powderly is most well known for his leadership of the Knights of Labor. The Knights of Labor were a new kind of U.S. labor union in the late 1880s. They invited workers to join regardless of their trade or skill. They helped to lead the fight for the eight-hour day. In his autobiography, Powderly described why he was so committed to the labor movement, writing, five men in the country controlled the chief interests of 500,000 working men and can at any moment take the means of livelihood from two and a half million souls. The goal of the Knights of Labor was to give voice to those half a million souls. By 1879, Powderly rose to become the Grand Master Workman, the highest leader of the Knights. Powderly was weary of strikes as a tactic for labor. Yet, despite these personal qualms, the Knights led several successful strikes under his leadership, including one against railroad tycoon Jay Gould. 
the Knights grew to represent 700,000 workers across the nation. But then the Haymarket tragedy occurred when a bomb was thrown by an unknown assailant at a workers' rally in Chicago in 1886. In the aftermath of Haymarket, there was a national backlash against labor unions. The Knights bore the brunt as membership dropped by nearly 90%. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Bill Lucy is a longtime leader at the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees and co-founder of the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists. In 1968, as part of his leadership role at AFSCME, Lucy lent his support to Martin Luther King Jr. and the mostly black sanitation and other service workers in Memphis who were striking for better wages and benefits. In spite of King's assassination in April 1968, Lucy continued to work in Memphis, helping see the strike through to a successful resolution. He's credited with the famous slogan, I am a man, that became the rallying call for the Memphis strikers. Labor Heritage Foundation Executive Director Elise Bryant conducted an interview with Bill Lucy that was featured at the foundation's recent Gonna Take Us All ball. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Yes, How long? Not, Not, long. Long. Not long. Ladies and gentlemen, we are proud to present Brother Bill Lucy. Uh, let me uh, first say uh, thank you, uh, Ms. Bryant, for the opportunity to spend a few moments uh, with you talking about things of interest to both of us. Uh, and, and let me say hello uh, to all the activists, the, the, the trade unionists, the, the, just those who have gathered uh, tonight, uh, just uh, exchange some ideas and share some thoughts and uh, just uh, refresh ourselves on the work that we've got to do. Well, Dr. King was one of the world's great uh, both thinkers, uh, doers, uh, and one who led people uh, into a, a righteous path, uh, and at the same time spent considerable time helping people think through uh, how to achieve a better life. Uh, I was in Memphis at the time of the uh, 1968 sanitation strike uh, when Dr. King came uh, to share his commitment with the 1,300 men who had gone on strike. Uh, my role was to try and uh, help uh, uh, think through what we had to do, how we were going to try and do it, and make sure that the uh, men who were struggling for a better way of life uh, knew that the union was there to help them uh, uh, try and achieve that better way of life. Uh, the 1968 a uh, sanitation strike was one of the great struggles of working men, and particularly b black working men, uh, to change a system that for years and years had kept them uh, without the possibility of changing their way of life. Uh, Dr. King uh, saw the situation, and if we remember, Dr. King was in the midst of organizing what was then called the Poor People's Campaign. 
which is a real effort to put a face and a and a and the appearance on poverty as as we knew it. And what Dr. King did was, was begin to organize and mobilize across the country, bringing just thousands and thousands of people from their cities, counties, states, bringing them to Washington, D.C., so that Congress could take a look at what poverty looks like. And uh, it was one of the great struggles that uh, uh, I had the opportunity to just play a role in. And the sanitation strike was one of the great struggles of working men uh, to improve the quality of their lives. Uh, by struggling to change the system. Well, I say to the young people, as, as dismal as the situation may look, uh, it's been harder before, and uh, we're able to do things that we never thought uh, we could do, uh, but we've, we've got to get committed to doing it. Uh, as bad as times may be, uh, they have been worse. Uh, we have made considerable changes simply by making a decision to struggle and to struggle to bring about change. And I, we see it every single day. I mean, uh, a few years ago, nobody had thought that a Barack Obama would be president of the United States of America. Two terms. Uh, nobody thought uh, that, 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 that we would have a, a Kamala Harris or we would have uh, uh, leaders who believed in our issue and was prepared to struggle for them. So, I mean, as, as difficult as it may be, change is possible. I, I, I would hope uh, that young people uh, would, would recommit or commit more themselves to uh, bringing about change. It's, it's not an impossible uh, thing. Uh, what we have to do is not give up, uh, not give in, and not uh, assume that nothing can change. Uh, if we look at 50, 60 years ago, we would never have given a thought to the kinds of things that we see today, uh, where we see in uh, business, where young black folks are uh, uh, building uh, businesses. Uh, they are part of the economic mainstream and as difficult as times may be, uh, the future holds great possibilities for being even better. Uh, Dr. King once said that uh, religion and labor are two of the most powerful uh, issues in our society. And I, I truly believe that. Uh, if little that cannot be done uh, if we put our minds to working with it in the context of our faith and secondly recognizing that organized labor is a machinery that has changed the course of history uh, both uh, for, for uh, uh, wages and benefits but changed it in the context of justice and fairness and I think that uh, uh, those who have the way, the will, and the commitment to fight for a, a better way of life uh, recognize that the trade union movement is, is that, that, that vehicle. Well, I, I'm, I'm just so hopeful that uh, 
uh, we not look at our current political environment and assume that all is lost. All is not lost. Uh, uh, as I said before, we have managed uh, to pull uh, and develop, as the older people used to say, a way out of no way. And what we're seeing now is our younger people are understanding the political process and the relevance of it. Uh, and what they're doing is learning more and more about how do we take politics, let me say, and the political process and make public policy that's beneficial to our interests. And we can't really ask for any more than that. We ask uh, and should ask, okay, give us an opportunity to play the game the way it's been played for years and years and years. And our young folks now are doing just that. We've got young people who are being elected to local government, city councils, county governments, uh, congressional seats, senatorial seats. Uh, I, 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 a friend of, uh, of mine and a friend of ours, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, who is now the principal leader of a major political party in the Congress. Uh, we've never had that before. We've had political leaders before but we've never had them at the point where policy uh, is made by them on behalf of a major, major uh, piece of the political life of this nation. And I, I, I'm just you know, uh, thrilled by the possibilities of what we can do in the future. Good night. Thank you guys for coming. And we're looking forward to uh, not just the, the, the beginning of this new year, but what we will do as we move through this new year. The Labor Heritage Foundation gives thanks and deep gratitude to Brother Lucy for joining us this evening. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1890. Miners from a number of smaller miner unions gathered in Columbus, Ohio to consolidate their ranks and form the United Mine Workers of America. During that first convention, the newly formed UMWA adopted a constitution barring discrimination based on race, religion, or national origin, as UMWA founders clearly recognized the destructive power of division. The United Mine Workers became a national leader in the fight for union rights in the United States. The union has been led by such significant voices of the common man as John L. Lewis, John Mitchell, and Mother Jones. The Constitution, adapted on this day in labor history, begins, There is no fact more generally known, nor more widely believed, than that without coal there would not have been such grand achievements, privileges, and blessings as those which characterize the 19th century civilization. And believing, as we do, that those whose lot it is to daily toil in the recesses of the earth are entitled to a fair and equitable share of the same. The UMWA pledged to use all honorable means to maintain peace between ourselves and employers, adjusting all differences as far as possible by arbitration and conciliation that strikes may become unnecessary. With their constitution in place, the United Mine Workers stood at the forefront of many national struggles for working people. They helped to lead the charge for the eight-hour day in the 1890s, then were a powerful voice to secure collective bargaining rights in the 1930s. While a powerful and influential member of the American Federal 
Federation of Labor, the UMWA was a major force behind the founding of the Congress of Industrial Organizations. The CIO helped to organize nearly 4 million new workers in industries such as steel and automaking in the 1930s. Through its principles and policies, strength and unity, the UMWA has been an inspiration to generations of working families for more than 100 years. The sound gets a little funky in spots on this next clip, but it's not long and it's so rare and so interesting that we wanted to share it with you. It comes to us from regular contributor Saul Schneiderman, who in turn got it from Steve Hanses, who back in 1985 sent Saul a cassette tape of his brief interview with Schubert Sabri. Schubert Sabri was a volunteer docent at the home of Eugene Victor Debs in Terre Haute, Indiana which had been established as a museum by the Debs Foundation. Schubert Sabri's father was a railroad worker and a member of the American Railway Union, which was organized by Debs in 1893. His family moved to Terre Haute, where at the age of 10, he was introduced to Debs by his father. He became close friends with Theodore Debs, Eugene's younger brother. As a young boy, Sabri worked in a Terre Haute glassworks, where he led a strike and was active in his union, the Glass Bottle Blowers Association. He was also active in the Socialist Party local and assisted in Debs' campaigns for president. In 1916, he was active in the Debs for Congress committee, including being the driver of the Model T, which was used by Debs to campaign throughout the district. During the Depression, Sabri organized the Debs Society to memorialize Eugene Debs and educate people about socialism. In 1962, when the Debs Foundation was formed, he became an active member and led the yearly pilgrimage to Debs' grave. Schubert Sabri died in 1980 in Terre Haute. I remember listening to one of the speeches Debs made in which he was talking about the condition of the miners in Colorado working for the Rockefeller mining interests. And it was a case of denunciation of Rockefeller as an individual because Rockefeller knew all of the things that were going on at a very keen mind. And he had people that told him all the things that were connected with these businesses. So he had no excuse for not knowing that the brutality was taking place in the mines the bribery and corruption of local officials were even up to the governor of the state of Colorado. Lockerteller knew all these things. And then that's attacked his piety, his hypocrisy. A man who attended church regularly and yet had so little consideration for his employees that he was permitted to use guns and gunmen and tribes to terrorize or communities of mayor. And yet at the conclusion of his denunciation of Rockefeller as an example of the Capras, he walked to the center of the stage and he said, what I've said about Rockefeller doesn't mean that I hate Rockefeller or that I wouldn't help him if he was in this chair. I would help him as willingly as I would help anyone. Now that seems like a contradiction, but Debs had the philosophy that people were the product of two factors over which they had no control. 
one factor was what they inherited from their ancestors. And the other factor was the way those inherited traits were acted upon by environment. And that the so-called freedom of the will was, it has so small influence in shaping human conduct that it shouldn't be counted against any individual. That Rockefeller was Rockefeller because of circumstances and because of inherited traits. He was Eugene Debs because he'd been brought forth in a different environment, growing up in a different environment, had different traits that he inherited from ancestry. The criminal that went to prison, he didn't condemn the criminal because he knew he'd been inherited the same traits, but he subjected the same environment, he would have been in prison. And as he said, if the other man had inherited my traits and criminals subjected to my environment, he would be in my place. So, as I say, he was the most loved and the most hated man. And I might add that he was the least understood man when it came to these personal qualities. Only a very few of his enemies understood Deb's philosophy, literature, influenced his thinking. However, in one of these writings, and I think it was published through an International Socialist Review, I remember, he was going through Colorado, and I guess he went up on the mountainside. And here in the ideal location were giant, giant trees, 80 feet in height. But when you got up to the limits of vegetation, the high altitude, well, these same trees were just bushes. They were dwarfed by their environment, stunted, dwarfed. And as he had talked with someone who said, will you bring your seed from your dwarf trees and plant it down this ideal environment, they're able to become giants eight feet tall. You take these seeds of these trees in the 80-foot environment, put them there where the limit of vegetation since their grows and they'll develop into Australia. So it was Deb's idea that if you change the environment, the social environment in which people live, and you created an ideal environment, that then we'd all grow to be giants 80 feet tall. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1959. That was the day the Susquehanna River flooded several mines throughout the Wyoming Valley of Pennsylvania. It marked the virtual end to coal mining in the northern anthracite region, whose coal mines provided some 11,000 jobs. Knox Coal Company, owned by reputed mobster John Scandra, ordered workers to illegally excavate underneath the river to get coal seams near Port Griffith. The company hit the jackpot and mined rich new veins. Even though state regulations mandated a rock cover of 35 feet when tunneling underneath a waterway, theirs was only about six feet thick. The roof of Knox Coal's River Slope mine soon collapsed, and a reported 10 billion gallons of water, ice, and debris from the river came smashing through. The collapse created a whirlpool, and dams were built to divert the river. 81 miners were trapped, and many desperately searched for hours for an escape. Some were able to get out through an abandoned air shaft. The bodies of another 12 miners were never recovered. 
Audrey Beloga Calvi recalled in an interview that her father, a miner who died in the flooding, predicted trouble at the mine before his death, saying, quote, when the water would get high, he'd say, God, if that river ever breaks in, we'll be drowned like rats. Ten were indicted including the mine's president, Louis Fabrizio, Knox's superintendent, and incredibly, United Mine Workers of America District 1 president and secret partner in the mine, August Lippi. Several would serve prison time. Four owners were convicted of tax evasion, and four local Union 8005 officials were convicted of taking bribes in sweetheart deal contracts, including Lippi. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. Well, railroading was a dangerous life. Men died every day. Many's the time the engine ran right off the right of way. Railroad men were burned and crushed and often maimed for life. And many's the time Debs gave the news to a broken-hearted wife. Well, Debs became a union man when he was just 16. A better life for the railroader, that was his constant dream. He preached the union gospel in every railroad town. He said, let's build a brotherhood, don't let them grind it down. That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, we sure hope you do. Please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Special thanks this week to the Labor Heritage Foundation for permission to use the Bill Lucy interview, to Saul Schneiderman for sharing the Schubert Sabri interview, to Steve Hansis for sending Saul the cassette tape of the interview with Schubert Sabri, and to the Mini Labor Archives at the University of Maryland for their preservation advice and assistance. Labor History Today is produced by the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening, keep making history, and see you next time. Wherever there's a cry for justice, that's where I will be. As long as there's a soul in prison, I, I, I.